Well, good morning and welcome again, everybody. My name is Dirk, a preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and I'm super pumped to be finishing up, to wrap up this series we've been doing all month of July called Selfless. Uh, in case you're just now joining us and you're like, what is the series? I haven't been around at all. Uh, you could summarize the whole thing, this whole monthly focus in one line, that Selfless is a, is a month where we're trying to live a God-centered life in a me-centered world. Now, we've been taking a look at different ways that we can live a selfless life, selfless with our identity, selfless uh, with um, a, a number of other areas uh, today with our will. Th today, we're going to take a look at the very, very core of who we are and to try to, and to, try to turn that over to God in a new way today. What I mean when I say we're going like to take a look at the, at the selfless core of who I are, I, I want to ask you a question I want to ask a question for those of you who are Christians with us today. You've already made a commitment. You've already made a, uh, a decision or at least an assumption to follow Jesus. Uh, if you aren't a Christian, by the way, and you're here because somebody promised you lunch afterwards or something like that, you picked the perfect Sunday because unless something dramatic happens in the next 20 minutes, like you can just kind of follow along and, and tune in if you want to. I mean, I, I think there's some good stuff in case you ever do make that decision later on. But for those of you who are Christians, I have a question. And the question for you this morning is this. Why did you originally decide to be a Christian? Like not, you know, yesterday or the day before, not like this, this current testimony that you might have about seeing God work in some way. I'm talking about like the very first moment you realize, I think that I'm actually a Christian. I want to ask, why? Why did you originally decide to follow Jesus? Why did you decide to be a Christian in the first place? I mean, I'll just... For me, personally, I'll tell you that, that it, it, was a, it was somewhat an easy decision because that's kind of like the way that the tide was, was turning in my environment around me. I'm talking about like church youth group. Like that was the thing to do. I remember uh, the moment, I guess the experience that I had that I looked back and said, yeah, it was then that I knew that God was in control over my life and it was time to turn it over to him. 14 years old at uh, sleepaway camp, right? And it was an awesome experience. Don't get me wrong. People came, they prayed over me. I had some alone time with God where I could kind of get some stuff out on the table and, and turn it over to him or, or try to. But like the thing about that experience is looking back on it now, I look back at it and I'm like, I don't, think, I don't think that I made a decision to follow Jesus because of my love for God. I think that I made a decision to follow Jesus out of love for me. I mean, I remember, right, I remember I was a pretty good kid. I got pretty good grades at an after-school job. And, and I wanted God's help in my life, really, to accomplish all of the things that I wanted to accomplish in life. And, and God was pitched to me, Jesus was pitched to me as he's the one, he's the one who can help you get and help you achieve, like, whatever it is that you want in the world. Like, God can help all of your dreams come true, all of your goals to come into reality. And, and as a 14-year-old kid, I'm like, who wouldn't want that in my life. And so it was a fairly obvious decision to start following Jesus. But remember, it wasn't born out of a love for God, but out of a love for me. It wasn't born out of this, this deep desire to give back to God, but, but instead to get something from him. We're going to kind of use the language this morning. It wasn't so much about contributing to him and, and to his kingdom that he was building, but it was all about consuming and taking from what God had to offer me. Now, if, if you're honest with yourself, I mean, there's probably a few people in the room who said, I never really looked at that question of why I originally decided to follow Jesus. But if I'm honest, I think, 
I think it was because the church where I grew up, maybe it was middle school, maybe high school, they had some sort of like class that everybody went to. And at some point, like everybody, everybody got baptized or at some point everybody made profession of faith or at some point everybody did the confirmation thing. And it's like every eighth grader moved through that. And so I'm like, I guess like that's the thing to do. And so you became a Christian. You like own this thing for yourself. But remember now, that isn't born out of a desire, out of a love for God, but out of a love for yourself. I don't want to be the only person left out. It wasn't born out of a desire to give, but to get, to contribute, but to consume. Now sometimes like as we get older and as we start growing, like that instinct doesn't go away. It does get more complicated. But as we figure out like what it means to actually hand, hand over our lives to God, and to do what he wants, not what we want, like we start to realize that's, really, that's a really complicated thing for a 14-year-old Dirk to like wrap his mind around. And as I get older, I'm like 33, and I still have no idea really what that means on a day-to-day basis. But I see all the advantages. Forget about Jesus. Forget about like the God stuff. Forget about like all the, the whole divinity thing. There's a lot of reasons why you would want to become a Christian just because of the te- following the teachings of Jesus, just because there's a lot in it for you most of the time. You, you, can, you can follow Jesus and follow the teachings of Jesus, and I think that you're going to see your marriage life improve, your friends' lives improve. I think that you're going to see a deeper relationships with the people around you. I think, that, I think that it might even help you out at work as other people start to notice, like this person walks around with integrity and, and works with integrity. There's a lot of reasons. I can't tell you how many people are here at church or, or at other churches too, but, but like this, this one in particular, who've come, many of you, right, who've come from like out of state or out of the area and have settled in West Michigan. And, and those of us who, who maybe were around here for a long time or maybe even grew up here, like we pull out our phones and we scroll through the contact list and there's like number after number with that 616 area code, right? But some people move to West Michigan, they open up their phones, they start scrolling through and there is nobody Nobody in their contacts list with an area code that you are currently living in. And when that happens, and when you find yourself that displaced, not knowing anyone on this side of the state, you do what a lot of people do. When you want, when you crave deep, meaningful relationships, you go to church. I mean, forget about Jesus, forget about the divinity thing, forget about you know, turning away from sin, forget about all that stuff. It's just a good way to meet people and meet somewhat quality people. I'm speaking very highly of you. I thought you would like that. Uh, stick with me here. Uh, it's a good thing to do. I can't tell you how many friendships I've developed, how many business partnerships have been born out of our upper lobby cafe area where a couple of people just get to start to talking and it turns out they have a lot in common and things just kind of like take off from there. There's a lot of good reasons to follow Jesus, but my point in all of this morning, all of that, it's good, but, it, but I want you to notice, it's not born, it's not born out of your love for God, but out of your love for self. It's not born to contribute, but to consume. It's not born out of giving, but to getting something from God. What I want to do this morning is to offer up that place, and many of you are in that place, and that's, and that's okay. If you're in that place, fine, that's good. But I, but I want you to see that place not as a final destination, but as a starting point. And I want to offer this to you, that that's, that's not a bad place to start. And I know that really because all the disciples started that way. They all kind of entered into this relationship with Jesus in a, like a tangible, physical, he's standing right in front of me, he's my rabbi, he's my teacher kind of way. They entered into this, like, like with this closed fish uh, mentality going, 
I, I still am concerned about number one. I still want to get like what I want to get out of this. I, I still am looking to consume. I'm still, I'm on board because I see like where the direction of this whole thing is going. And then little by little, it's like Jesus pries open our fingers and like offers our whole life to him over time. And that's what we're talking about this morning. I say that the disciples, all the disciples, had this me-centered reason for following along with Jesus because, because Jesus was, he was a rabbi. I mean, he was a great, he was a respected teacher. And, and most of the disciples, they grew up in these homes where they went to, where they went to Hebrew school or really, really rabbi school as kids. And as they got older, it got tougher and tougher and, and more selective and more selective. And eventually 99 out of 100 kids were like dropped out and they kind of went in, into the workforce. But like the, the top, the creme de la creme, right? They became rabbis. That was Jesus. But for the rest of the disciples, like a lot of them were fishermen. And so when Jesus comes by, by the way, he's not calling out to like 30 or 40 year old disciples. He's calling out to teenagers and he's saying, hey, James, John, I want you to leave those nets behind. Why don't you come and follow me? Like, you could be a rabbi. You could be a teacher like me. Who wouldn't want that? I mean, what an opportunity. This sort of thing doesn't come along every day. This is never going to come along to them again. So, of course, they follow along, not out of this deep desire to follow after God, but, but out of this deep desire to love and to serve themselves. And we're going to get that in just a moment. But, but for this morning, we want to look at that moment when that first like crack starts to open or that first new like crack starts to open in, in a new way or, or maybe in a new area of your life where you didn't necessarily see God moving in the past. You know, to look at that moment this morning, we're going to call those garden moments because Jesus is going to have one of these and he's in the garden. And we're going to see that garden moment not as a bad thing, although it's a scary thing, but we're going to see that as an opportunity to find more clarity in that moment than maybe you ever have before. I want to go to a Bible passage. It's going to be Luke um, chapter 22. By the way, there's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. Luke 22 starts off this way. It's going to be a short one, so we're going to make a lot of comments on it in between. And it's going to be important to know what's after and what's before as well. But Luke 22, we're going to kick it off with verse 39. It says this. Uh, Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. That's a favorite place for him to go to. Uh, it's kind of quiet time to get away from it all. And his disciples followed him. And I want to highlight like that disciples thing because his disciples were following him like in a physical sense only. I mean, their, their bodies, definitely right there, just walking feet behind their rabbi Jesus. Their hearts were a long ways away. We know that because of what happens immediately after this story. If you're reading this in like a paper Bible like I am or, or an app on your phone or something, you're going to see the next heading is Jesus arrested. Jesus is, this is like the last thing, the last scene before uh, these guys come with spears, with clubs and swords and take him away where he's going to be insulted, where he's going to be tied up, where he's going to be uh, tortured, where he's going to be executed eventually. This is a, like the last thing before all of that happens. Now, what happened immediately before this story is that Jesus was hanging out with his disciples in an upper room somewhere, uh, in a kind of apartment upstairs that we often call the upper room. And Jesus is participating in this sacred meal 
in Jerusalem. I think it's going to be important to know that for what happens next. So um, this is going to be important, and there's going to be a test on this later. So if you could, like, if you're note-taking, you think I'm joking, but um, just kidding. Uh, so Jesus is hanging out with his disciples in this upper room. He's participating in this meal. It's called a Seder meal in Hebrew. It's called a Passover meal because they're celebrating the time when their people, the Israelite people in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, they exited Egypt, the land of slavery. See what I did there? It gets even better because, because as, as the angel of death was coming through the, in Egypt where the people were, they, they took a lamb and they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorpost and the angel of death knew to pass over, to skip that house. And so when they're celebrating this meal, they're celebrating when the angel of death passed over. You get how things are named. They're pretty intuitive, like once you hear the story. Anyway, so the angel passes over, and this is such an important event in the people's identity. We're talking about these disciples now that are following after Jesus. It was so important to their very identity of who they were that they had a Passover meal every single year to commemorate the time that the angel passed them over and that they were set free. Now, there were incorporated into this meal various elements that helped them to remember in in not only like like a mind kind of reminder thing, but in a sensory experience too, the smells and the taste of things. For example, uh, they would have this meal And uh, one of the things that they would uh, accompany all these meals is like bitter herbs, spices, horseradish sauce, which sounds good to some of you, both of you. But um, for them, though, it it reminded them as they took it and as they ate it, it reminded them of the the bitter experience that their ancestors had as slaveries way back in the time of Egypt. Uh, Along with that, they would have, uh, they'd be serving lamb at the meal, right? Like lamb, doorbell, for obvious reasons. Uh, They ate bread that didn't have any yeast into it, so it was like flat and like hard, because they left Egypt uh, in such a hurry because uh, after so many people had just woken up like dead, gone from the angel that, that moved through there, they, they left in such a hurry that Pharaoh said, you need to get out now. And, and so their bread didn't have time to rise as they fled out. And so to remember it, they ate bread without yeast into it, which is like this hard kind of cake, hard like thing that they would eat called unleavened bread just to remind themselves of the hurry that their ancestors left. Okay, now the important thing that I want you to hear is there are these certain elements of the meal. It's a four-hour-long meal uh, with uh, lots of readings kind of mixed in between. So, I mean, like, it took a while. And at each stage, there was, like, a prescription of what they were supposed to do, what they were supposed to eat, what they were supposed to say, and in many cases, what they were supposed to sing at these different stages of the meal. One of the things that they would do is they would pass around a cup of wine. Those are four cups of wine, actually, that would move around the table as they did their readings and did their sayings. And and they would each, like, drink a cup of wine. By the way, today, if you have four cups of wine in one sitting, it does not count as a religious experience. That's something else entirely. Come talk to me about it afterwards. That's cool. But they, they, they would have this experience of this meal, this Passover meal that they celebrated together at, at various stages, reminding themselves of everything that had happened to their ancestors in Egypt. And they would wrap up the meal. They would wrap up the meal with uh, singing a song, a hymn, actually. It was a, 
it was a prescribed hymn as everything was. It was Psalm 136. If you want to look it up later, you totally can. The reason why that one was so perfect and so fitting is because it has this like repeated refrain. Every other line is, his love endures forever. It's repeated 26 times, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. It's like one of the last things that they wanted to cement into their experience was this like, no, 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 God's love endures forever. Like whatever you are going through, whatever your battle is, wherever you are failing, you have to know that God, God had victory once when we were in Egypt and still his love endures forever again, again, and again. 26 times in a row. And then the very last thing that they would do as they'd pass one more cup around the table, the host would begin and serve it to the person on his right. And this was the wine that was the leftovers. This was the wine that had gone bad. This was the wine with all the, like, the little floaties. And this was the wine with like the nasty little dregs at the bottom of it. This is the wine that nobody wanted. And they would pass around this bitter cup around the table, and each person would drink from it. And they'd pass it to the person to the right and, and to the right until it made its way back around to the host, the last person. Meanwhile, the host was reading scripture or reading different uh, rabbis' writings about how someday God is going to come and he's going to right every wrong. He'd be, he'd be giving these speeches and offering up these prayers to God to come, to God to come and not just to write out every wrong, but to take his holy righteousness and his justice and to pour out his judgment, to pour out his wrath on all of the nations that look down on them as a people, on all of the nations that despise them, to pour out God's righteous judgment on every ungodly person. And then the very last person around the table would take that wine and however much was left of it, a lot or a little, and they would drink it down, say amen, and the meal was over. Now, the only reason why I think that's going to be important for the story in a little bit is that, is that as the storytellers, and there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they get together and they share what happened in that upstairs apartment on that afternoon turned into evening, we can put everything together and we can see that they drank three cups and they sang a hymn, his love endures forever, and then they left. When they left, in verse 40, they left to go to Jesus' favorite place, the Mount of Olives. Sometimes you hear it as Gethsemane. Gethsemane is like a little garden kind of tucked in this mount. It's at the foothills. And in verse 40, on reaching the place, Jesus now said to his disciples, Pray that you'll not fall into temptation. And you ever just like stop and think for just a minute, what kind of temptation is Jesus talking about here? It's alone. They're all alone. It's the middle of the night. They're just coming out of a four-hour-long meal with four glasses of wine served. Like, what is the temptation that is suddenly going to take over them at this odd hour? But Jesus says, pray. Pray against temptation in your life. And I think the reason that Jesus was, was encouraging to, for them to pray against temptation is because he could look around at each one of his disciples and he knew, he had just this way of knowing just what the temptations for each one of them was. And, and it sort of like, like boiled down to, to like kind of the same thing with each one of them. But, but because all of them had this way of just misunderstanding who Jesus was and who Jesus was about. And Jesus knew, I mean, we are 
hours away from his arrest, from his subsequent torture and crucifixion. And, and Jesus is like, pray against temptation in your life because a moment is coming hours from now here in this garden where temptation will take you and you will, and you will have to make a decision or will you have this moment and you have to decide who you're going to be, whose will you're going to follow, if you're going to continue being in it for yourself or, or, or for someone else. I think he could look around the room and, and he looks at one of, his, one of his strongest disciples, the person who swore to Jesus, I will be with you into prison and to death. And at that meal in the upstairs apartment earlier that afternoon into evening, he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, you won't. I sure will, God. I sure will, Jesus. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, no. In fact, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. Three times, Peter. Three times you're going to deny even knowing me. And Peter says, no, no, no. You're the Messiah. And it's almost in the sense like Jesus is saying, I know that you believe that, but what you believe about that is so mistaken and it's so off. You see, Peter, you still think that I'm going to be this, this Messiah that's going to boot the Romans out and this Messiah that's going, to have a, that's going to have a palace and a throne and there's going to be gold and there's going to be soldiers everywhere. You still think that, that I'm going to have this like, amazing empire that's going to supplant the Romans and you don't get what kind of empire, what kind of kingdom I'm starting here, Peter. And when you see what it is, listen, buddy, it's going to freak you out and you're, you're going to be gone and that's exactly what happens. The temptation that Peter faced is just, is just too much. I think Jesus, in the upstairs room, in that apartment on that day, looks around the room, and he predicts. He says, someone in the room here is just about to betray me. And everybody, no, no, it's not me, it's not me. Yeah, he's in the room right now. I know his heart, I can see it. Now, some of us, you know who Judas is because you've heard these stories before. And have you ever stopped and like wondered, what was it about Judas that like made him betray Jesus? Like, I, you know, I hear this story and I'm like, it, it makes no sense to me because here's a guy, right? Judas. Here's a guy who saw, G, who saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. Incredible. Incredible. And I'll tell you, those 5,000 people are going to follow him anywhere. <laughs> These, the, the Judas is a guy who saw Jesus with his own eyes raise a man from death to life again. Like Judas is with Jesus when Jesus goes to his friend Lazarus' house and says, roll away the tomb. And even his family, the people who cared most about Lazarus said, uh, you're not going to want to do that. He's been in there for like three days. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. And Judas sees all of this. Judas saw Jesus stand up in a boat in a storm and tell the, and tell the weather to calm down. And it did. Like, like, what is his end game by betraying Jesus? I think that we're clued in when Jesus says, pray against temptation. Because Peter, because Judas, what you're tempted about right now isn't in forgetting that I'm not the Messiah. You're not tempted to believe that I'm not who I say I am. You guys believe these things. But you just want to have it your own way. And you just want to follow it along with your own timeline. 
You just want to do it by your own means and not mine. And Jesus is having these, we could call them uh, Peter moments. We could call them Judas moments. Let's call them, let's call them garden moments, though. That Jesus and his disciples are being tempted in these garden moments to just deviate just this much away from God's plan, about, just deviate just this much away from God's will. It's like these garden moments where what we want and, and what God wants doesn't, doesn't quite line up and isn't quite so easy anymore. And we have to make this decision in the garden moments of what we're going to do. And for Judas, he looked at it and he said, you know what, Jesus, I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe even that you're the Son of God. I believe that you can calm the weather, that you can raise the dead. Jesus, I can believe all of these things about you. The only thing, Jesus, is that you're just going about it wrong. You're just going about it and you're, just, you're, you're, you're moving too slow and you're too nice to the Romans and you're too mean on the religious people. Like, like Jesus, you're just, you're not doing it right. So here, here's what I'm going to do. Jerusalem, it's Passover time. It's the capital city. Everybody, the city swells three times the size. Jesus, now's the time to like speed things up. Like, like we got everybody eating out of the palm of your hand. I'm going to speed this thing up for you, Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to talk to the religious leaders. I'm going to talk to those Pharisees. We're going to hatch a plan to get you arrested. And the crowds are going to find about this. And the crowds are going to be on your side. Everybody's going to be on your side. And Jesus, like just when it looks most dire, you can like stand up and, and do your Jesus thing. And then finally, everybody is going to know what I already know, Jesus. You're welcome. Just don't forget about me. Don't forget about what I did to help your plan out. But then when Jesus is arrested, he doesn't get handed over to the religious authority. He gets handed over to the governmental authority, to the Romans. And they have the power to execute him, something that the religious people didn't. And when they executed Jesus, Judas looks back and says, what have I done? But we go back to these moments of temptation, of these garden moments. In order to ask you all a question, I want to ask you a question to search your heart fearlessly, now, and answer honestly. In, in those moments, in those garden moments, when your will wants to go this way and God's will wants to go this way, like which are you going to choose when it's most difficult? Right? In those garden moments when nobody else is around, it's just, it's just you and it's your God in heaven. That's the only people who are going to find out about what this thing is. Which are you going to choose? When you are offered a dream job, I'm like, what an opportunity. I mean, everything looks so good, and you've worked so hard for it, and on paper, it looks so amazing. And there's just like a family thing in the way, or it's a geography thing in the way, or it's like a job, the specific work of the company is kind of questionable that you're working for, even though the specific role is just so perfect. And you're like looking at it and going, because of the family, because of the geography, because of the company, the organization, I, I don't think that it's God's plan for me. But I want this thing so bad. And God, you know what? I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to be so successful. Like, God, I can do your thing my own way. So, God, I'm going to pray. And in that moment of temptation, I'm going to pray, God, to impose my will onto you. God, make this happen. I want it so bad. And God is going to be telling you and challenging you to walk away from that thing that you've wanted for so bad for so long. 
Or maybe if it's a job thing or an opportunity thing, you know, you're starting to strike up a friendship or dating relationship with somebody, and it's like, he's so dreamy or she's so dreamy, right? I mean, everything looks, everything looks so perfect and so ideal, except for, like, within the relationship at some point, like, you find something out about the person or you find something out about, like, the belief system or the value system or the lack of systems, and it starts to, like, hit you. Like, I, I think, like, way back when, I think my youth pastor told me, like, warned me about something like this. You know, many years down the road, this thing could come up again. And in that moment, like, like you know, in that garden moment, like, this is what I want. I mean, I could save her or him, and it could just, it would be such a cool story to share and a video testimony at church someday. You know, or what God wants. And you're, you have this garden moment it's ask you to walk away from that instead of imposing your will to surrender your will. All kinds of these opportunities come up, these deals that could make or break you, deals that could put you on the map, a deal that maybe if it doesn't get you all this fame and notoriety, like at least it brings stability to you, something that you've craved for a long, long time, except for as the deal progresses, and it looks like the dream deal is starting to set into place. You're looking at this thing going, the, the figures are kind of messy. There's this whole deal over here that's you know, intentionally kept murky, and I'm just I'm feeling like worse and worse about this thing right now. And everybody around you is telling you, just go for it. You're going to be so rich. You tithe, and it'll be awesome. But God is saying, I think maybe you should walk away from this thing. And in this garden moment, you'll have to make this decision about whether you'll resist that temptation, this temptation to do, sure, God's thing, but your own way. And when that moment happens, and maybe you're in it right now, and maybe you don't need a hypothetical, maybe you just know the thing that's coming up, or maybe you're gonna, you're gonna be in that moment this week with something, and when that moment comes, I want you to know this, that you will have, regardless of outcome, regardless of choice, you will have remarkable clarity in that moment about, about who you actually are, about what you actually believe, about whose you actually are, you will have, regardless of outcome, remarkable, defining kind of moment. A moment that you can look back on for the rest of your life and say, then it was there that I knew that I either belong to God from here on into eternity or not. But now, I can point to that moment and say, yes, because of that garden moment, I surrendered my will instead of imposing it on God, resisting temptation. And speaking of wills, this is what I love like, about the Bible, about Jesus, really, in the Gospels, because there are so many things about Jesus that are just so far and away, like, I can't even believe, like the storm thing, or the Lazarus thing, the feeding thing, the water to wine thing. We could just go on and on and on. There's so many things in the Gospels about following Jesus that are so obviously incredible and just beyond our even my imagination for wrapping my mind around those things. But there's so many things. Like this thing comes along and Jesus all of a sudden doesn't seem that far away. Jesus all of a sudden doesn't seem like this distant kind of ethereal goal to achieve someday, but just gets like right up close and, in, and has his own garden moment in the garden. This is what happens in verse 31. 
So after the temptation thing, uh, verse 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and he knelt down and prayed, Father, Father, if you're willing, take this, this cup from me. You see, he was looking ahead at everything that was just about to happen. Remember, he's just about to be arrested and he knows it. He's looking ahead at the arrest and he's going like, I don't want to do it. He's looking ahead at the, at the mockery, at the insults. He's, I don't want to do it. Who wants to do, who wants to undergo that sort of thing? He's looking forward to the arrest. He's, he's looking at, at them like twisting the, the, these thorn bushes in, into a crown and like sticking it and digging it into his forehead and like bleeding. And he's going, I don't want to do it. He's looking at himself like, like suffocating on a cross and he's going into crucifixion and execution. And he's saying, I don't want to do it. He's looking forward when all of his disciples that he poured his life into and poured his soul into and he's looking at all of them running away and he's praying yet in his garden moment God God I don't want to do it I don't want any part of it at all but that's not why he prayed this prayer he prayed this prayer that had nothing to do with the physical suffering that he would undergo. He prayed this prayer because he intentionally didn't pass around that fourth cup because he knew what that fourth cup was. He sang his hymn and he moved on. And now he's there in the garden and he's looking into the cup and he sees the floaties and he sees the dregs and he can almost taste the bitterness though it's a will ways away from his mouth yet. And he sees that cup that's filled not just with hurt or insult or loneliness or pain. He's looking into the cup and he is seeing the very wrath of God being poured out for all the unrighteous sinners among us. He's looking into that cup, that fourth cup of God's punishment, his righteous punishment. And he's saying, God, take this cup away from me. I want nothing to do with it. I don't care about the pain. I don't care about the insults. But God, I cannot live under the, under the righteous judgment that you're going to pronounce. I've done nothing wrong. I don't want to drink the wrath that should fall on them. And still praying now, and still kneeling in that garden, cup of wrath in front of him. He says, God, I didn't want to do that, but yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. It's not what I want, but it's what you want. I'm not here to just consume you, Father, Jesus prayed. I am here to contribute to this kingdom and to save everybody who would believe in my name. I'm not, here to, I'm not here to get, but I'm here to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm not here out of my love for just me, but out of my love for you, Heavenly Father, because we are one, and I cannot do without you. And we look at this, this reasoning when Jesus had the opportunity to either surrender himself, his will, or impose his will. He says, not my will, but yours, Father in heaven. Your will, thy will, not my will, be done in this 
garden moment. That, friends, that is selfless. And that is Jesus. May we have the courage this week in our garden moments when we know what God expects from us to follow in the footsteps, the sacrificial, selfless footsteps of Jesus Christ. I invite you to stand up. And in just a moment, we're gonna sing a song together. And we're gonna sing about the victory that Jesus has over sin and death. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of people in the room who have maybe come to Jesus for the wrong reason, who have come to faith and even maybe even come to Christianity, not out of love for God, but out of love for yourself. And that's a starting point, but that's only a starting point because right now God might be prying your finger open and to stop clenching on, to stop grasping on, to stop holding on to your own will, but to surrender it over to God. And so I want to give you an opportunity this morning to say, not my will, thy will be done. Whatever got me to this place, it doesn't matter, Jesus, because you're taking me home. And so I want to give you an opportunity to declare to God, not just who you are, but whose you are. If we're going we're gonna to say a prayer all together. Everybody now, I'm going to say the words and I invite you to, to say it all following me a little bit at a time. And afterwards, I'm going to ask you that if you've never prayed that prayer or if you've never meant that prayer or it's been a long, long time, I'm going to ask you if you've prayed that prayer for the first time and if you've meant that prayer for the first time, on the count of three, just put your hands in the air. We're going to have our heads bowed. We're going to have our eyes closed. I'm simply asking you to give a demonstration to show to both yourself and to your Heavenly Father that you are ready to surrender your will to his will. I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's, let's all together say a prayer. Say after me, Heavenly Father, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is your son. That he died and rose to life and conquered death and conquered sin. And I turn away from sin today. I turn over my will to thy will. Now, eyes still closed and heads still bowed. If you prayed that prayer for the first time in a long time, or if you find yourself meaning that prayer, on the count of three, just put your hands up in the air and let's worship God together. One, two, three. Put them up, church. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God in heaven. Praise be to the one who has victory. Amen, church. Amen.